0: There? Awesome. Let's try that again. Uh, uh, like I said, my name's Todd Golding and I'm a partner solutions architect focused on SaaS. And um, as you can imagine, I, I look at a lot of uh, partner solutions. I work with a lot of organizations that are building SaaS products. I've actually built a handful of SaaS products myself. And so the, kind of, the common question I kind of get from a lot of people is like if you were building a SaaS solution either from scratch, or if you were building a greenfield solution or you were, or you were uh, migrating a solution but you had the freedom to sort of tear it apart and rebuild it again, where would you start? Like, what would be the sort of roadmap for that solution? What would be your fundamental strategy? And uh, I'm not sure my answer would have been the same all along my career to that answer, but after I've seen some of the themes and some of the patterns I've seen in development, um, it's become very clear to me that I would very much start with Identity as the primary area of concern for me, um, because what I've seen when I've worked with different people and have built my own solutions is that identity ends up being this foundational concept that isn't just about authorizing somebody or getting them in the front door and making sure they they have secure access to the system. It ends up being much more foundational and takes on way more meaning in a SaaS environment than it might be in a in a traditional just standalone application. And so here we have. All these additional factors that we have to sort of layer onto our identity equation uh, to sort of come up with a model that can help us to deal with concepts like tenant isolation and data partitioning. What we find as developers is everywhere we're touching the system, identity is influencing the way we're trying to perform some action. And it's the context we need to operate on many of the dimensions of the of the system. And so as part of that, started looking at some of what we do with identity today and what identity provides us and what identity providers have built for us and said that's nice but it doesn't really solve the full SaaS equation for me what can I do what mechanisms are out there which strategies are out there that I can leverage um, to build this more complete SaaS identity solution and this is where I found OpenID connect right open ID connects an open standard out there for Uh, identification and for authorization that's used very heavily implemented by many providers. And I found that even though there's no secret sauce to this or magic to it, it gave me the basic mechanism I need to sort of plumb my solution with the identity bits I needed for my SaaS environments. And then it ended up me to connect that to my isolation story, to my data partitioning story, and so on. And so that's the emphasis of this talk is to really look at what are the underlying mechanics of that? How does it work? We'll get into a hints of some code of what's under the hood of some of that and re- sort of look at how it all connects end to end and ultimately how it connects to this isolation story. Um, um, parts of this talk, I, I wanna be sure I give out it as a qualifier, parts of this overlap mildly with an architecture track I have at the end of the week. So uh, be, be prepared if you come in, if you see a few slides from there in there, it's not a repeat of this, but there's a little bit of overlap between the two. Um, with that said, let's look at what's sort of the fundamental challenge of SaaS identity. As I said, there are nuances and differences that, that SAS add to this equation. Well, what are they? Like, Why is it different? Because if you look right now at the identity space and you say, what's out there? What can I do if I'm building a SAS solution? There's great identity providers. They've been around a long time. In fact, people often build uh, their own LDAP solutions themselves. There are plenty of ways to tackle this. And these providers, you know, Okta, Ping, Auth0, or Cognito, or whatever you want to use, they do a great job of giving you all kinds of cool features and capabilities for managing the profile of a user. But the problem is that the roots of these solutions are all in the idea of saying identity is a user-centric concept. I'm going to tell you who the user is, what their address is, what their email address is. That's the realm that they focus on. But the problem is, that isn't enough for a multi-tenant solution. And a multi-tenant solution, I have this notion of tenant identity as well. My user is just a user, they are a user in the context of some very specific tenant, and that tenant context is essential to how they flow through my system. I need to know what tenant ID they're associated with, I need to know which What's their status? Are they active or inactive as a tenant at all? Because I may not even let you in if you're not an active tenant. And what billing tier are you a part of, for example? What role do you have in the system? There's these additional attributes that we need to connect to your user identity um, to really have a true robust solution for a SaaS environment. And so I like to take these two concepts and say, if I can find a way to mesh these two and connect these two concepts and merge them into one concept, I can have what I call a SaaS identity. And here, if I have a SAS identity, and this SaaS identity flows through my system as a first class construct, it's going to make the developer experience better. It's going to make all the downstream bits I want to do with isolation better. Uh, so I fundamentally need to achieve this. And I want to achieve this, by the way, early in the development of my environment. Because you can imagine uh, if I solve this early and it's flowing through the services I'm building in my application and I'm building out the rest of my application infrastructure, you'll see that um, how I implement data partitioning will be influenced by this strategy. How I implement all the moving parts of my system end up being touched by this. In fact, I said to some teams, if you were going to do a sprint one of your very first SaaS product and you were starting from scratch, if I had login and it just did the bits of authentication that needed to be done, that would be an awesome sprint one to me. The other sort of motivating factor in the space is the natural movement where the industry has made towards more decomposed systems, right? We see microservices as being a much more prevalent approach to this. We see our applications broken down into smaller and smaller pieces, and we see these collaborating services that are often very chatty and have a lot of uh, interaction between them. Well, now as you move towards this more distributed model and this microservice-based model, and you're building a SaaS solution, you have to think about how is identity gonna flow through that context. When I say identity, I mean identity and tenant identity gonna flow through that context. If you can imagine that each one of these services somehow has to resolve and understand the context and they're all communicating uh, very regularly, if that isn't a very efficient experience and I can't flow tenant through that very efficiently, I'm going to have underperforming services here. They're not going to do well uh, with that model. So, microservices are also forcing us here to a, to a lower latency strategy for solving this problem. Now, as a baseline, we need to look at just what's the traditional model for, for identification here. Like, how do we normally solve this problem just using an out of the box identity provider? And if we look at this, and most of you have probably implemented some flow like this along the way, Um, your your tenant hits some web app, that web app says, hey, you're not authenticated, I'm going to redirect you to some identity provider, and that identity provider is going to say, okay, I'm going to take your credentials, I'm going to see whether you're valid or not, and once you're valid, I'll let you back through the web app, and now you come back through in in an authenticated context, and you can begin to invoke the rest of the features of the back end of your application. And some token, or depending on which identity provider or strategy using, some notion of of my identity or my credentials flow through that experience. And eventually that web app is going to hit back-end application services, right? Some token, some some piece of data will flow through, hit these application services. And um, for the most part, that worked really great. But the real challenge here is, um, when I'm inside one of those application services, and I've got this request, somebody asks me to go get orders from the, uh, from the orders, order management service, and I, go to, the, I got to go to the database and say, go to DynamoDB, for example, and say I'm going to go get those orders out of DynamoDB, I still have to do that in a tenant context. I need to know which tenant I'm getting orders on behalf of. Well, I don't have that identity in this model. That I don't have that tenant identity in this model. I know who the user is, but I have no idea what the tenant ID is. So then we introduce some notion of a tenant management system. And I have built this solution myself. It was an awful solution, but I did it twice, in fact, just to prove how awful it was. Um, And lots of people build the solution because it just seems like the only way to solve the problem, which is introduce some tenant management service that is the mapping of the user to the tenant. But the problem with this service is it becomes this huge bottleneck on your system. Pretty soon you find out, hey, all these services, especially if you've got these microservice environments, they're trying to resolve their t- tenant identity and all get all this tenant scope, and they're all going to the tenant management service, and suddenly the tenant management service is just overloaded with requests, and you start getting failures there, and start getting latency issues there. So you start turning up the PI ops on whatever's storing this mapping to try to get the throughput to be better. You start throwing more compute at it. You start caching, and it distracts you and takes you away from the fundamental problem you were trying to solve to begin with, which is you're trying to build an application. You're not trying to build a tenant management service. That's taking all the focus and energy away from the core needs of your application. So what's this look like with OpenID Connect? How does OpenID Connect help us solve this problem? And I'll confess right now there's no, like, magic voodoo, deep-dive, kind of really complex answer to this problem. It's a very basic answer to the problem, but it's a very powerful construct because it's implemented by these identity providers as part of their compliance with the OpenID Connect specification. So here in OpenID Connect, we get the same thing. We hit the web app. We get redirected to the OpenID provider, and then that OpenID provider hands us back some tokens. But now these tokens that gives us back an ID token and it gives us back an access token. The ID token holds the basic data about the identity of the user. The access token generally holds the bits that are going to flow through as part of my authorization profile. Although I will say the implementations of this, people vary a ton about what they'll put in the ID token and what they'll put in the access token. But the intent is that that's the role they play. Um, And embedded in these tokens are also... uh, this ability to extend these tokens and introduce your own constructs. And that fundamental ability to introduce your own constructs is what makes this uh, possible for us to introduce our own tenant bindings. So, And we'll look at that in a minute, but for the moment, let's follow the rest of this flow. So now I have back these tokens, and these tokens now have the goodness that I needed in them. They have the tenant context I needed in them. So now when I hit my application services, I'll pass through in an HTTP request uh, the, uh, the a normal sort of request that we'd get here, but inside that request will be an authorization header, and that authorization header will have a bearer token in it. And that, this is sort of standard HTTP way of passing along a token here, but the magic is in that token. That token is gonna be our access token, and that access token is gonna have all this extra context that we need. So now, these application services, uh, when I'm the developer building one, and I have the same scenario we just called out, I want to go get orders out of the order table, and I need the tenant context to know how to do it, I can pull that tenant context right out of the token that was passed in, leverage that tenant ID, and go get the data with the context I wanted. The better part of this is no more tenant management service. Right, no more going to some other service to go acquire this, this extra piece of data. Now, I will. Conf- there's still a, often a tenant management service in many uh, SaaS solutions. It's just not there to resolve this tenant scope all the time. It's more a uh, owner of tenant configuration and data that is still acquired, but acquired much less frequently. So, if we dig a little deeper into these tokens and we say, what's in these Open ID Connect tokens? Like I said, no magic in here. There's nothing special. These tokens are called JSON Web Tokens, or JOTs. And a JSON Web Token is essentially a property value sort of collection of attributes that are expressed in a JSON uh, format. And when you look at these and you look at the specification uh, for OpenID Connect, you'd say, oh, ID tokens have a set of attributes that by default, as an implementer of the specification, I should naturally support. phone, family name, you know, email address, the normal things that you would expect to capture, and those are required to be implemented by the OpenID Connect providers. The access token also has a, a set of attributes that it collects. But like I said, the great moment here, that I, the great discovery here, was that yes, these, these sort of baseline attributes are here in the Jot token, but it also supports the ability to extend that model and introduce your own construct. So now, tenant IGD gets put in there, um, status, role, all those extra bits that we need to make our full SAS identity get pushed into this equation. The other question that comes up here is, great, but how secure is this mechanism? You're using JOT tokens, or using OpenID Connect. Well, as you can imagine, any security sort of specification that's going to have any value to anybody else is going to have to guarantee that those tokens can't be somehow sniffed off the wire and somehow pulled apart in a way that somebody can get access to your information. So the the specification has this whole signing mechanism uh, where you can sign the token and and that token is basically encrypted and then passed on the wire in a signed format and then unpackaged and unsigned with a a certificate on the server side of this equation. So you have comfort that that data is passing in a secure fashion. Now, those are the sort of fundamental bits of this, right? That's JOT, that's OpenID Connect, that's this notion of uh, embedding these additional custom claims, custom attributes uh, into our bits. What does that really look like in an implementation? How does that come together, right? And so what I wanted to do here is walk through an example implementation, and I'll tell you right now, and I think I've got a reference to this at the end of my slides, this is pulled right out of a quick start that we recently released called um, SAS Identity and Isolation with Amazon Cognito. It is an end-to-end implementation of the model that we're talking about today. And so the bits you'll see on the screen here are lifted straight out of that. The snippets of code that you see here are lifted straight out of that. So if you want to go see this and a full reference SAS implementation on, with microservices on ECS and DynamoDB, um, go download that. There's a big doc also there with it that explains these concepts. Um, so this screen, though, let's go ahead and walk through this registration process. When you open this app, it's pretty basic, pretty vanilla app. It says, hey, I want to onboard as a new tenant. Um, I'm going to go in here and put in some basic data. So information about myself, uh, the company I belong to, and the tier I'm signing up. This is a free tier, basic tier. Fundamental basic things that you would do for any kind of registration screen probably would look a lot better than that one, but um, it is a sample application. Um, Once you push register on this, um, from the end user's perspective, that just means... They see the system say, hooray, yes, we've signed you up, and I'll send you an email to say you've signed up. But under the hood, we're actually orchestrating a lot of parts to make the identity piece of this come together. So the first thing we do here is with Cognito is we create a user pool. And we consciously made the choice here with Cognito to create a user pool for each tenant. And for those of you who haven't used Cognito, user pool is just a, a, a way of describing sort of a collection of users that have, are grouped together, right? So each tenant has a group of users. And the nice part of this is by putting them in a user pool, um, we're able to, at the user pool level, configure policies and configure the nature of that tenant's experience on a tenant-by-tenant basis. So this allows us to have tenants that have different configurations. Whereas if we put them all in one one uh, one sort of ov- one large group, um, then whatever the policies are, they would apply to all the tenants. But there's pros and cons to this, and we'll see it go through it. But essentially, we tell it, hey, go create the user pool, and when you configure that user pool in the code, um, go create some attributes that are the attributes that are the custom claims we want. So you probably can't make it out. That screen's kind of uh, fuzzy there, but if you were to see it, uh, up close you'd see that this is a snapshot from Cognito and it shows role and tenant ID and these other bits that got provisioned. so essentially if you were after this whole provisioning process were done if you were to go into Cognito open up the screen and see you'd see the, this as one of the remnants of what got provisioned in the process we also have to create a federated identity and this is just a remnant of how Cognito works which is when I create a user pool for me to, be able to use that user pool with, uh, with uh, with for authentication, I have to associate it with a federated identity. So I tell it what user pool is there and what app ID is there. And once I've done those two steps, and when you look in the code, you'll see there's a lot more to this than what I've shown here, but these are the fundamental steps. The last thing I have to do is actually create a user. So a user signed up. I still don't have a user. There's no way for them to auth. So the last thing I do in this process is take this user who registered, Create, uh, create them in the system, and create them with the attributes that are on the screen they signed up. So tell me what role they're in. Tell me what, uh, what all those custom attributes are there. But once I finish this process, once all this provisioning is done, I will then have all the mechanics necessary for somebody to go and do the very authentication scheme we just talked about, where the tenant identity and the user identity are bound together by Cognito. The other good part of this is, as part of picking user pools, I said you could have separate policies for each tenant. You can imagine, some tenants might say to you, I want MFA, I will not run your system if you do not do multi-factor authentication. All of my customers must have, uh, support that model. Um, and another customer says, we never want multi-factor authentication, right? Well, these are all configurable options at the user pool level within Cognito. So if I, by doing what I've done, I basically can have separate password policies, separate multi-factor authentication policies for every single tenant. In fact, in my tenant administration experience, I could surface these as options that could be configured by each individual tenant to say, what do you want? I, I like distributing these policies out to the tenants as much as I can. Now, um, So far, we sort of showed the simple path for provisioning here, which was a tenant signs up. But one of the things I see partners and people building SaaS solutions, one of the common mistakes I see them make is they don't really think about all the roles in their system and all the different ways a user might come into that system. And so they don't really build uh, a good generalized mechanism for onboarding every kind of role and every kind of tenant. And as an example of that is this notion of system users. These users are often an afterthought for many organizations. But if you think about it, if I said to you, hey, I've got automation, I've got all these moving parts to set up a brand new environment, I'm gonna provision a brand new environment from scratch, the very first thing I have to do with that brand new environment from scratch is create some kind of super user, that is the user that manages all of the tenants. This is your internal user that has, con- has access and control to all of the system aspects. right? Or there could be caveats to that, depending on the nature of your environment. But my point is that I have to have some experience for this user to be able to get in and exercise the registration service that then will create the user pool, create all the bits that are needed for identification, sorry, for identity, that will I- allow this system admin to roll in uh, and come into the system with the appropriate context. So this user has to have context just like a tenant user has to have. And I want to leverage this and make this a data driven and an algorithm driven process. So I want it to be orchestrated by the same registration service that orchestrates the onboarding of a new tenant. Now, will will that system user have the same experience as a tenant who signs up? No, you're not gonna have a registration screen for a super user to sign up for your system. I don't think anybody would be very happy about that. You're going to instead probably have APIs and your own internal tooling and a lot of things with a lot of protection on it. But ultimately, you're gonna have some API that says provision a new system user, and that will then be orchestrated by the registration process. Now, the other side of that is just uh, the one we looked at, which is a tenant comes in, they register, they go through the onboarding we already looked at. That also calls this registration service and creates that tenant user. And then there's another path, there's actually multiple here, but this is another interesting one, which is, yeah, that gets that tenant admin in, but then how do we get users in for that system? The tenant often has multiple users, they have to create those users, those users have a provisioning path. And you need to then say, hey, as a tenant admin, I'm gonna go into the administration capabilities of my system, I'm gonna to have to have some user management bit there. I'm gonna add some kind of new tenant user to the system, and that will go through the registration process. That will create the new user. It'll send out some email, and some new user will get an email saying, hey, you've been, your new users for you have been created on the system. You'll come back, you'll get a challenge for a new set up your password, and you'll be in. So two big takeaways from this for me. One is you ought to be thinking about multiple roles here when you think about how you create an identity. And the second big takeaway here is you'd like the mechanics of how those users get created and how their policies get created to be a shared construct. Um, There's nothing worse than saying our tenants all come in one way and their identity all gets managed one way, and then we kind of do this weird thing for how admin people get in and see the data. I want that all to be one concept. So what's this authentication flow look like with Cognito? So we hit the web app and now here's the most controversial part of this. I said we chose to use user pool, but there was a downside to using user pool. Well, because we used user pool, when you come in and you decide to authenticate, I have no idea what user pool you as, you know, Todd at amazon.com map to. I have no idea how to authenticate you and I can only authenticate you against the user pool, but I got to map you somehow to that user pool. So that required us to introduce our own service as this authentication manager that became the orchestrator of this mapping and the orchestrator of this authentication process. It doesn't seem like a horrible thing, but if you think about it, I've now said one of my services is um, now a bottleneck for the system for identity and getting people signed in, and I own now the scale of that and the capabilities of that. So I have taken on some extra responsibility by doing this. Consciously made the choice, but if you're going to go down this path, I definitely would want you to think about, do I really want to put my own services in that authentication process, or do I want to go straight to the identity provider and take a slightly different approach? But caveats aside, we hit the auth manager. The auth manager says, great, I know who you are as a user, got your credentials, but I don't know which user pool you belong to. So it goes to a user manager service, and the user manager is basically the one responsible for saying, which, which user pool here? It doesn't really know anything about your data. It only knows which user pool you map to. And then it looks you up, says you're a user pool in there. You, you, here's your user pool ID. If it obviously doesn't find one for you, it just throws you out. Then it goes to Cognito and says, give me the actual user pool for this user. Goes and looks it up. Assuming we succeed here again, now we have the user pool. We know which user pool you're in. We have all the fundamental bits. We actually, under the hood here, get your federated identity little nuance that's not shown in the diagram. And then we can actually go and auth you against that experience. And when I auth you against this experience, the magic of this, which to me is magic at least, uh, maybe I get too excited about this stuff, but the magic of this is that that authentication now comes back with tokens that hold all those bits that we configured in that uh, provisioning process. So I have my mapping, and it's just a normal auth experience and I'm all good to go in terms of tenant context. There is a bit of a, it's a downside or at least something else to think about with this custom claims approach, though, right? Like I said uh, before, the OpenID Connect uh, specification includes a standard set of attributes that are out there. And if you only bind to those bits, uh, and you only bind to those standard attributes, and let's say you're a B2C solution and really... Uh, You you just want to accept anybody's identity provider. You don't care if it's LinkedIn or Facebook or whoever. You're just trying to have a frictionless way for somebody to get their identity set up and into your system. Then you can't necessarily have a solution that relies on custom claims because in these other providers, they're really not exposing a management experience to you, right? And with some identity providers they're only gonna say, yes, we'll auth for you and we'll be your auth experience, but we don't have a whole management console where you can go tell us which custom attributes you're supporting and, and what that experience is like. And so when you bite off custom claims as part of this model, you're sort of also acknowledging that you're gonna own some management experience, that whatever provider you've selected, that you can configure that provider in a way that can be made aware of these custom claims. Because out of the box, they don't know what, what they wouldn't know anything about the claims you've introduced, and they don't just naturally pass them through, which would be awesome if they did. Um, so, th- this is just something to keep in mind. What I find with most SaaS organizations is they tend to ha- want to manage their own identity provider anyway, so this doesn't end up being a huge deal. But I would, i feel remiss if I didn't at least point that out. The other piece I want to look at here is... How, once we have these tokens, how are we now starting to validate them? How are we applying them inside the application? How are we going to apply them for isolation? How are we going to apply them for data partitioning and those bits? And I want to start at the outer edge here of this, right? Because I feel like there's a way through the API gateway that you can do something that is a really good sort of first line of defense, Right, So you have this token that's flowing in, it's this token that's our SaaS identity token now flowing in, and it's flowing into the API gateway, and you've put your services on the other side of the gateway, and you've mapped all the entry points to your environment, uh, your REST entry points through the API gateway. If I pass those calls through the API gateway, I can introduce something that's called a custom authorizer. I can essentially, for each of the entry points in the API gateway, say, here is a Lambda function that will be called every time that function's invoked. And that authorizer can open the contents of, of the incoming headers and examine them and ask, is this, uh, is this user actually allowed to even call the function or this entry point? Are they allowed to get through here? Because if they're not, we'll just throw them out at the edge and we don't have to worry about what other layers of security are underneath that. And it's a super powerful construct and I recommend, even if you don't, whatever you're doing with identity, I, I recommend this as a powerful way of like building a wall that's a very powerful wall at the edge of your services. Now, if we look under the hood of that custom authorizer, um, we, we can see some sample code here for one that we built. And this is really a snippet of code because you can only fit so much on the screen. But you can see that there's a very basic mechanism here where I poke into the incoming request I pull out the JWT token, the JSON web token here that is our token that comes in. I construct this policy that is going to be used to determine is this user coming through or not. And then I peek inside the the configuration of that token to say, what is this user allowed to do? And in this example, it looks at the token and says, uh, is this person an admin? Do they have admin privileges? If they do, tell the policy, all the methods are allowed through. It's wide open. The person can come through and do anything they want. However, if it's not, constrain this to get operations and just this one post operation for users, for creating brand new users in the system. And then when this goes back to Lambda, am um, sorry, goes back to the API gateway, this policy will then be applied to decide are you allowed through or not? Now, part of adopting this model also um, comes with some considerations for what might this do to the performance of your system, right? If you're examining every single one of these requests as it goes through the API gateway, it could add latency that you don't want, right? So I often see people who will go with the authorizer also use some kind of caching scheme here to say, how often do I want to be evaluating this? and I might So I might have to introduce some tuning here to be sure that I'm not adding overhead to all my calls. The other bit of this is What's the developer experience, right? How do this no- use of these tokens affect the way developers write their actual code, right? Because we said at the beginning, we'd like this to be an experience that simplified the application of identity for individual developers who are either writing a client or building an application service or doing something of that nature, right? And so I've got an example, and these are snippets pulled out of that sample application that I talked about. And I've got a client-side view of something and a, a service-side view here. And the sample application was written in um, AngularJS. So those of you who are familiar with AngularJS might recognize some of these constructs. But basically, this idea of a root scope in, inside of AngularJS is like this sort of global construct into which I can, I can shove data that then can be referenced across the scope of the application. So here you'll see some sort of authentication. I got a response back, and now I'm pulling the token out of the response and I'm decoding that token. You'll see the jot helper, the blue line there. I decode the token, that pulls the token uh, apart and gives me the, the sort of jot, the JSON representation of that token, and now it's just a matter of poking into that, into that JSON structure and saying, give me the first name, give me the last name, give me the role, and so on. And what I'll do on the client is I store these away, and on the client side, this is, hey, hi, Todd, welcome back to the application. I can use your name or whatever. And the role, obviously, is used to control paths that somebody can actually navigate in the app, right? You can't go into admin because you're not the right role or whatever. So on the client side, I'm going to use these roles and some of these bits to prevent navigation. And then on the server side, I have an entirely different experience. So if you look at the server side, and this is written with Node and Express, you'll see that I've got some entry point there that is basically implementing the get of an order. And so you just see the path there. It takes an order and it takes an ID. And then before it actually goes and gets the order out of the database, it makes this call to say get credentials from token. And this function is meant to be this really simple line for developers to just say, hey, I'm about to do something from the database. I got this request go tell somebody to get the token, that the credentials that are the valid credentials for me, and I'll apply those credentials when I interact with the database, but I don't have to know what it's doing. Like, my whole goal in doing this was to say, hide away as much of that detail because I don't want developers to be implementing the policies. So I make this call, that call comes back, and now when I call a DynamoDB to go get those orders, if I'm not allowed to get them, um, that call's going to fail. Or it will return nothing, depending on how I've implemented this. Now, if you dig into that get credentials from token, this is, you can get a sense of what this is doing. And you'll see this looks very much like the client side of this. Except now, I'm, I'm, pulling the, I'm taking the request coming in. I'm going for that authorization header. I'm parsing out the token that's there. And then I'm calling a couple of functions, and we'll come back to the secret sauce kind of functions. That are, but these functions are essentially saying, hey, go over to Cognito and turn this incoming um, token into a set of credentials for me that are the credentials that are the ones that are valid for me to use for this call. And finally, the last bit here is this function, this result, these results come back. Let me see if I can, uh wrong button. Oh, it's not going to work on either side anyway. You'll see in the last function near the bottom of this, um, it has a results that come back. The results are actually my credentials, and I'll call this update credentials, which is a callback function for those that are uh, familiar with JavaScript and Node, uh, the Node and Express experience, and that basically passes back the credentials that have been mapped here. So now this function hopefully hides away all those nuts and bolts. But we'll look at what the secret sauce of this is doing internally to make that exchange of your token for the appropriate credentials and how that's affecting isolation, which is key. So that's a good transition then to this notion of isolation. We've so far said, here's all the bits of identity. We've got it all in. We know how to auth. Everybody got the token we love. But how are those tokens used to shape my isolation experience? And I, and, and you have to think about this. A lot of SaaS, I was meeting with a group this morning, and I was like, how many of you are applying isolation policies, like in your code, in a way that no matter what a developer does, if you, if your identity doesn't allow you to cross a boundary, you can't? And then most of the people said, uh, we're not doing much there. We haven't got to it, right? But reality in a SaaS world, that's like table stakes. It's fundamental. You have to be able to tell your customers, I've done everything I can to keep this customer from getting to this customer's data and their environment in general. So we have to think about, hey, tenants have these resources. Here I've got DynamoDB and S3 buckets, which are owned individually by tenants, and this notion of a queue in the middle, which is shared by the two of them. So I have this idea of shared resources and sort of individual resources that belong to these tenants. And I've got to come up with some isolation scheme that says these tenants can only see the scope that are valid for them. The other thing I have to think about here is. I have to have policies that span two types of users. We talked about these system users. These system users are sort of, are vertically here. They see all the tenants. They have to be able to get to data for all the tenants. They have to be able to manage tenant environments. They have to interact with all these bits. So they have to have privileges that let them see that full spectrum. Whereas individual tenants are obviously constrained to their environments. But even within individual tenants, we might have an admin, but then other types of users within that tenant. And you'll see system has different types of users as well. Might have an admin user, but then I might have a support person who only has got read only access to a few things. So I have to factor all that into my isolation scheme. So what is this, how does this affect our provisioning scheme? So far we just provision Cognito, but the truth is we provision more than Cognito when we set up that environment. We also set up IAM policies. So when we provisioned a system user and we, provisioned that, and we went through that exercise and we went through the registration service, it actually provisioned a set of IAM policies that said, these are the policies that describe the different types of roles and the, view, and, the, and the scope of data that they have access to and the scope of resources they have access to. I also, when I registered a tenant that we talked about earlier on, when I registered that tenant, I provisioned roles for that tenant as well. And I show multiple here because I want to convey the idea that each tenant will get their own collection of roles. But there's a super important point here, which is I'm not creating roles for every user. I'm creating roles for every tenant. And then those, each user, as they come in, will get bound to a role, and that will be the role that gets applied and controls their scope. Because I don't want to have these these policies sort of exploding and having tons of them in the system, right? I want to make that a manageable experience. So once I do that, I'm also going to create an actual identity. So the provisioning process creates the bits of this we talked about, which is the identity of the user plus it creates all these roles. So the net of those things is really puts all the moving parts in place for my identity and isolation story. Got the token, now I have the the IAM roles that are provisioned here. Now I just have to find a way to connect them all up. And I wanted to dig into just one of these roles to give you a better sense of what is it really doing to achieve isolation. So in this case, we have an order table that's out there in DynamoDB. Again, this is lifted right out of our example uh, code that's out there. Um, I want to control that. All the t- there is a table with orders in it in DynamoDB, and that table uses a partition key that is tenant ID. And I want to be able to say, hey, this tenant can only see the orders that belong to that tenant and no others. So what I do here is I introduce this condition in my role that uses this notion of leading keys. And you'll see in their DynamoDB leading key an actual tenant identifier. And that tells this role that any user who's currently logged in with this role. They're allowed to see that data. If you you, you don't have that role or your leading key won't work, you won't be able to see another tenant's data. So now, what does it mean to resolve those bits, right? I said we have identity, we have these roles. Who's connecting all that up? How's it actually working? So we have the same front of the process we went through a few times here. Same sort of process. We auth, we get in, we get the tokens. We know that works. But now when I call some service, my, my order service here, to go get some orders, and I pass my SAS token through the identity token through that experience, and I make all that, that wonderful call we talked about earlier in that resolving the tokens bits where I said, get credentials for token, um, that's, that call is actually going out to, under the hood, to Cognito and saying, hey, I have this user, I have their token, I know the role that they're in. Um, Can you get me a valid scoped um, uh, set of credentials that I can use for this user? And what I did when I set up Cognito is I made a mapping of roles to a set of uh, policies. And so Cognito sort of hides some details away from us here, and it automatically knows how to say, I can create the binding of a given role for a user to a set of policies and automatically give you back a credential that's the valid credential for that for that uh, scope of access. So back from that comes a token, and now I have a secret key and an access key that's bound to that set of policies. And that is the joy of Cognito because the Cognito, the Cognito, Cognito because Cognito obviously has uh, can build in baked in knowledge of IAM. It can create this binding that isn't that you can't necessarily create with a uh, provider that's outside of the AWS environment. But I wanted to, I certainly didn't want to leave the other bit out of this, right? Which is, what does it mean to do this if I don't have Cognito? What if I've used one of the great third party products? And by the way, all those products can implement the same scheme and do very well. In fact, we're building uh, another version Start with Okta right now that takes these same mechanics but shows it re- realized instead of through Cognito and, and through another identity provider, just to make it clear that. This isn't a Cognito specific implementation. So same, same login process here, but now when I'm using uh, um, another identity provider or even my own LDAP provider, there's nothing to magically map my role to the token. I have to do, the, get, do that mapping. I have to make the call that makes that mapping right now to get, my, I get that set of credentials that are scoped by my IAM policies. So now I'll make some call out to the AWS STS service, and I'll say, hey, assume role with web identity, and I will have tucked in the role there and populated this call with the moving parts of this, and now the STS service will do that transformation of, oh, yes, here's the role you asked for, here's the roles mapping to the policies, I'll create you a token that is the token representation of that. So then you can imagine, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe this is what Cognito is just doing under the hood anyway. So back from that comes an STS token, and we still have a secret key and an access key that is the key that can be used to now go call whatever services I want. Now, it's imp- while we've got a really natural way here when we ta- described with DynamoDB and leading keys and a, uh, to sort of create IAM policies that are natural here to constrict the view, uh, as you move across the different services in the AWS stack, SQS, RDS, Redshift, just imagine all the different services. The scheme for partitioning and the mechanism for describing a policy that can be used to connect all these moving parts is going to be potentially different for each one of those. You have to figure out how you're describing that resource and how you're creating a view of that resource that, that carves out a tenant-specific view and be able to define a policy that narrows the view to just that tenant. So it, there's certainly more work to do, and it gets more complex as you look at some of these other services. The other thing is, depends on which multi-tenant model you have also, right? If you're in a siloed model uh, where all your tenants are running in their own stack of, of resources, um, it's very different to describe scoping and, I, and policy access when you're in a siloed model versus in a pooled model where users are sharing, or tenants are sharing all the resources. And obviously, the more the model is pooled, the more clever I have to be with coming up with um, uh, policies that scope access. The more siloed it is, it's a more coarse-grained view of the resources, and it's a little easier to come up with policies that control the access. My bigger point here is there's a broader spectrum, a set of considerations. DynamoDB is one example. You have to think about how are you partitioning your Uh, your tenants in general, and which AWS resources are using, and what the policies would be for each of those resources. Now, I think I already emphasized this, but it's probably worth coming back to a bit. I said where would I start if I were ever doing this? Uh, And I said I would always start with identity. And this slide is my way of saying like when you, whenever, wherever you're at in the process, right? Say you're just refactoring or you're migrating a solution to SaaS. I would still come in and if you asked me where to start, what would you do? And you already had an identity solution. I'd still wanna go back and ask, do we have the right identity solution, right? Is it the right piece? And, I'd wanna, and I would wanna see how that identity in, uh, solution is affecting the way you're partitioning data, how you're achieving isolation, um, how you're using it to capture analytics and metrics. Is it wired in in a way that I can surface the right kind of metrics with the right kind of tenant context? It affects too many moving parts to not sort of think about it uh, from the beginning. Uh, so uh, even though it might be working with just basic authentication and you're getting in the door, I don't think that's enough. And what I find is when I implement these services at the bottom, when I'm forced to think about isolation as an example, and I'm forced to get that tenant context via this token, and and I go through those steps to do that, I'm getting a better sense of the developer experience I'm creating. I'm getting a sense of how vulnerable these services might be. Did I do a good job encapsulating the policies? I'm getting a better sense of whether I'm really achieving the kind of isolation that I really want. So for me, it might change the way I actually implement the service. If you just said, Todd, go implement the catalog service, don't worry about identity right now, just go create whatever you want, you know what the, re- the rest footprint is, go do whatever you want to do. I'm a, I'd go build something, but now you say, hey, two months later, could you, uh, could you, you need to introduce identity to your catalog service. Now I'm going to start scratching my head potentially and saying, uh, oh gosh, I didn't think about this, or I didn't factor that in, and I might find myself in a bigger refactoring exercise than I expected. The other piece here is, I know I've talked about Cognito, but I really want to emphasize the point that, you know, there are really good uh, solutions out there. So even when I talked about the fact that user identity doesn't necessarily include tenant identity, it's not a shortcoming of these products. It's more that SaaS just adds this extra dimension of it. So I would still look very hard at these partner solutions and see whether they're a good fit for you. Cognito's awesome, but these folks do interesting things. And they all approach SaaS in slightly different ways. So uh, some of them are, are really great at single sign-on. Some of them have uh, features that aren't just aren't incognito now. So I, I really encourage you to look at that. And the nice thing is OpenID Connect tends to be, for whatever reason, a standard that is really much, very much accepted and implemented by these, many of these providers. Uh, so a lot of what we talked about here carries forward into that model. And this scheme of using custom claims to in- embed tenant attributes uh, I'm seeing lots. This pattern show up a lot outside of SaaS, even where people are sort of piggybacking on uh, on these custom claims to achieve these results. So, what are some of the takeaways here? Well, I hope you realize that if whatever you're doing for identity now, I would like to see you move from user identity, if you don't have, uh, to some notion of SaaS identity. Right? I really want you to get SAS identity to be a first-class construct where, where the binding of this user identity and the tenant identity become one concept and it's, and you're never like going somewhere else to get that piece of data. However you implement it, find another approach, don't use OpenID Connect, whatever your mechanism is, just bind those two together because if you can bind them through together no matter how painful it is at the front of the process, Once it flows through and it's all there, I think you saw through the examples here how much power it can give you and how much simpler it can make isolation and all these other moving parts. I think I just hit this point, but I'll say it again. Um, I definitely want you to piggyback on custom claims wherever you can to add these attributes in. I think custom claims are an awesome place here. Um, But you've got to also remember the caveat I added, which is If your goal is to say, I want to be this identity agnostic sort of solution and I'm not going to manage it and I just want to leverage every identity provider or any identity provider that my users want, custom claims is not probably going to be a great fit for you. This one is so obvious and yet still worth saying. I see solution after solution where policies and security policies are being decided at the fingertips of developers. Developers are out there in their code making choices that are affecting your business potentially because they're sort of exposed to the raw aspects of security. They're making, oh yeah, every time we code this call, we know we're supposed to put this little special value in here because that hides us. We don't know what it does, but that's, that's how I always make that call. And, and the more I push the complexity of, of those policies out into the nature of my services, the more I expose myself and the more I distribute those policies into all the different places of the, in the code base. So hide them partly for developer experience, but also hide them because it'll make your system more secure. Think about both the tenant and the system users. Don't just focus on tenant users. You will, system users have interesting needs. I think we saw examples here of the way system users cut across all of these experiences and you need to be thinking about both of them at the same time because it will influence the strategy you implement for your overall or uh, provisioning process. Identity is connected to isolation, right? You shouldn't separate these concepts. I want identity in every way I can, uh, even if it's just my code. Let's say I'm not using IAM. I'm using my own role-based access. I've got some own scheme that's my own scheme. I'm using Spring or some other framework. Whatever I'm doing, I want identity from the moment I log in to carry the context with me that is going to be fundamental to applying isolation and controlling access to resources. And my statement I started with, SaaS should always start with identity. That's just a fundamental concept to me. So last bit here. Um, if you, as you go away and you go back and you start looking at wherever you're at in your SaaS journey, wherever you're at in sort of adopting SaaS, what are the same things I'd like you to think about as, you, as takeaways from this? Right? I definitely want you to think about how you're connecting user-intended identities, Uh, I want you to think about how its uh, identity flows through your application. Is it flowing through efficiently? Are you, you, uh, as you more and more decompose your application into smaller services, is it going to stand up to that sort of test? Is it flowing through efficiently in a way that you're not going to create bottlenecks and challenges there? Um, Is this a good developer experience? Whatever you end up with your approach, how much code do I have to write as a developer? To leverage the identity to do the bits I want? How much, how much extra code is it in overhead? Is it adding to my effort? Um, and how are you validating access, at, right? We talked about custom authorizers and how custom authorizers could be used at the edge to validate access. Where along the path are you stopping and validating and saying, are you allowed in? And where can you create boundaries that are multiple sort of points of entry into your system where you can stop and ask, Are you allowed through? Are you allowed through? The more places I can challenge, the happier I am. I've got to do all that without adding overhead or being inefficient, though. And then, finally, what are you doing to limit cross-tenant access, right? You You have to, as table stakes in a SaaS business, do everything you can here. And this is, as I said, connected directly to your identity theme. So these are the bits that are here. I hope you got a good sense of, like, just generally what Open Idea Connect is about and why I think it's super relevant to SaaS environments and how it can help, again, one of many possible solutions. And I hope you got a sense of how that connects to IAM and how you can connect it somewhat transparently to IAM uh, in a way that just gives you the goodness that you're looking for here in terms of isolation. So thank you very much for being here very, on a, a very late uh, time of the day here. Uh, uh, hope you have a great conference. Oh, minor detail. There are some, a couple of the sessions. I have a session at the end of the week um, if you're interested. And that's the reference to the, that's the name of the, I should have put the link there, but it's the name of the solution that's out there that I referenced SaaS Identity and Isolation with Amazon Cognito. Thank you. Missed one slide.